0: Good morning, church family. Um, For those of you who are visiting, we are uh, preaching and listening our way through the gospel of Luke, and we're on Luke chapter 20. Vic says it's on page 1635. chapter 20 from verse 27 to 44. Let me just start at verse 26 to remind us hopefully of what we heard last week. They were unable to trap him in what he had said there in public and astonished by his answer they became silent. Then Luke records some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her. And in the same way, the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will, be, will she be, since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage. But for those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come, And in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. But in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. Some of the teachers of the law responded, Well said, teacher. And no one dared to ask him any more questions. Then Jesus said to them, Why is it that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself declares in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The reading of God's word. I don't remember exactly how old I was or what year it was, but it was um, sometime in my late teens, shortly after I had come alive to the Lord and um, was beginning to read his word, that my dad wandered upstairs, and I can still picture exactly how this happened. I was sitting on the couch in our living room, and he came He came up the stairs and around the corner, and he looked at me, he took one look, and he saw that I was really down. And he said, what's wrong, Dave? And I looked at him, and I said, Dad, I think Jesus is coming back soon. And you could see the puzzled look on his face, like, well, if Jesus is coming back soon, why do you look like that? And so he asked And I said to him, well, Dad, if Jesus is coming back soon, I'm not going to have a chance to get married, and I really want to get married. (laughs) I had just read this text 20-something years ago, and I thought marriage looks really good. I want to have a chance to experience it. If there's not going to be marriage in the age to come, I don't want Jesus to come back soon. I share that story with you, At the opening because I think that we bring a lot of different experiences of marriage into our hearing of this text. Can you turn me up just a notch, Andrew? And I think that matters, and so I just want to call to attention what some of those experiences are, because in the center of this text, Jesus is going to talk about relationships in the new creation, Uh, but we bring a history of relationships, and so some of us, have been single our whole lives and longed to be married and not had a chance. And it doesn't look like, so far as we can tell, we're going to have the chance to be married on this side of heaven. And so there's sort of unfulfilled longing. Some of us have would say that for us, marriage has been bittersweet. It's been both. Maybe there's been Uh, the sting of divorce, the hurt of it on one side, and the sweetness of good marriage. And maybe those were both ours, but maybe the sting came from our parents. Maybe some of us had to grow up in homes that were just broken, 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 and marriage looked like the worst thing we could ever imagine, and we don't want to come near it. We don't know if we could ever trust somebody else because of what we saw in our parents. Some of us have lived like the woman at the well, through one, two, three, four marriages. Some of us have never gotten married, but lived through 14 relationships. Okay, so we bring into this text a history with relationships, and I really believe that the Lord Jesus has a strong word of hope and encouragement for every one of us, no matter what our experience is, as we bring them in. So we want to name them, and the Lord's just going to hold those experiences for us for a moment. As we kind of now step, we're going to zoom out, we're going to look back at the context first in which Jesus speaks these words. So what's the context? And who are Sadducees? Well, if I gave Aunt Sharon's answer, Sunday school answer, I'd probably start by saying, well, they're sad, you see. They're sad because they don't believe in the resurrection, they were, they were a small minority group of religious leaders. We've talked about the Pharisees. They're the larger group and the teachers of the law, these Sadducees. They're a small group and they consider themselves the religious purists. Nobody's as pure as them. So they only believe in the first five books of what we now call the Old Testament, the books of Moses. Those are the ones that you can trust, not the rest. Only this is where God's spoken. And these books don't say anything about resurrection, so we don't believe in that. And by the way, we don't believe in angels or demons or anything you can't see with your eyes. None of that's real. They'd fit right in this century with the materialists and everybody since the Enlightenment that says the same thing. But that's who these folks are. And actually, they really don't like the Pharisees. They don't get along with him. They're competing. They're argumentative. They fight with each other for just about everything except one thing. There's one thing that they're not fighting about. And that's Jesus Christ. They both detest Jesus Christ. They both are threatened by Jesus Christ. And so we've seen the Pharisees and the teachers of the law push and push and push and push against Jesus. And he's not given God has given him wisdom to answer every situation. He's demonstrated his authority. He's retained his authority. He's acting out of it. He's king, rightful king and lord. Nothing has moved him. And here we are. Folks, this is the last challenge. There are no more after this. It is the last one. And so the Sadducees are going to present it. They're going to rise up with the Pharisees and they're going to bring the challenge The challenge is around the resurrection and whether there is a resurrection from the dead. And so Luke says, now the Sadducees who don't believe in the resurrection, and then he tells a story that says, now Jesus, a man died and uh, his, uh, his uh, uh, brother married his wife and so on and so forth through seven of them. And at the resurrection, doesn't that sound strange? At the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Well, they're telling this story purposely making it attempt to sound silly, but what they're really doing is this. They're trying to get Jesus to show that he doesn't agree with Moses, because Moses in the books of the law said that if a man's brother died, if a man died, his brother needed to marry his wife. Those, those words come from Leviticus, so what they're doing is they're holding out some words from Moses and they're assuming Jesus has no way around them because this is a foolish situation that, that just shows that resurrection can't, can't at all be possible. And if they can get Jesus to disagree with Moses, they can stone him. Because the law of Moses says that anyone who rebels against the law, the word of God, is liable to be stoned. That's what they're doing. But I want to tell you that there's something else going on and that's this. We've said before, and the gospel writers have pointed out that Jesus pointed out actually, he said, You lie. In the Gospel of John, he says to these leaders, You lie because your father's a liar. You lie, and when you lie, you speak his native language. Your father's the devil. Woo! But those are from Jesus. Because in Jesus' worldview, like Pastor Gina told us last week, there is no neutrality. We as human beings are not autonomous. We're fathered by someone. If you're not in the light, if you're not in God and in his kingdom, you're being fathered by the father of sin and the father of lies. And that father who's got these leaders in his control is working through them. So he's working through their words. He's the one who's been rising up, rising up, rising up, trying to get rid of Jesus. And now his last rising up is his attempt. This is Satan's attempt to go for the jugular. Because the whole Christian faith, the whole hope of the Christian stands on resurrection. If there is no resurrection from the dead, everything falls apart. If there's no resurrection from the dead, there is no accountability before God beyond this life. If there's no resurrection from the dead, there is no judgment. And if there is no resurrection from the dead, there is no hope in eternal life. Let me summarize those and then give some examples so they don't just sound like abstract words. Without the resurrection of the dead, there is no justice and there is no hope. It, it only takes a little bit of creative thinking to wonder, let your mind and your heart wander across the continents and across the centuries and to think about what this really means. This means every young boy or girl who's ever had their innocence stolen from them at a young age and then had to live out decades of pain and confusion while their perpetrator never got caught is out of luck for justice. No justice. They just got dealt a bad hand. This means that every woman who has ever been born into a country or a culture that treats women like second class citizens is just out of luck. Got dealt a bad hand. Including those countries and cultures that practice genital mutilation. I'm going to be real with you here because there's a lot of pain and evil and suffering. And if there's no resurrection, there's no justice. This means every parent and grandparent who's ever had a child or a grandchild snatched from them, whether from The ravages of war, or that of cancer, or that of the government, or that of somebody who just simply stole a child to sell him into slavery, is out of luck. This means that anyone. Who has ever flown a plane into a building, committed an act of terror, flown a plane into a building, blown up a bomb in a marketplace, where their last act was to take their own life, is exempt from judgment. This means that six million Jews would have lost their life in World War II and there's nothing to do about it no justice. You know that when East Germany and West Germany came back together again, the very first thing that their, their very first act of parliament ever undertook was to, was to formally apologize to the Jews and to spend minutes in silence. It was a beautiful thing, but it was not enough to bring back people from the dead. The six million Jews still died and 12 million other people were slaughtered across Europe and thousands and thousands and hundreds of thousands of people lost their sons and daughters in war. And every parent who ever cried a tear because they were separated and cut off, this would be saying they would all be out of luck, nothing, no hope for them. I'm scratching the surface here. Can you feel it? If there's no resurrection, there's no accountability, you get away with something, whatever happens in this life, if you get caught, you get caught. If you don't, you don't. There's a lot of people that don't get caught. There's a lot of justice that doesn't get served in this world. We live in one of the most just countries in the world, and still justice is not served much of the time We live in a country in which there is tension that was mentioned in prayer racially and in which people are being treated by law enforcement officers in ways that are sickening. If there is no resurrection, there is no accounting before God. If there has ever been a bone in anyone's heart, if you ever said something was not right and wanted it to be made right, What you are longing for is the judgment of God. You want God to make things right. You want justice. And if you don't have the hope of resurrection and of judgment, you have no hope for things being made right and just, and you have no hope that extends beyond the grave for seeing anyone that you've ever lost that you love. It matters. It matters terribly. And Satan, through these leaders, is going for the jugular. And Jesus will have none of it. Jesus, who in John 11, looks Martha in the eyes and says, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. I am. Anyone who believes in me, though he dies, will live. Do you believe this? And she says, yes, I am the resurrection. And so Jesus, the one who shortly will go through the grave and rise, looks at these Sadducees and he says, in Mark's translation, you are sorely mistaken. Luke, you do not know, or do you not know? And here's the crazy thing. He is saying to people that have the first five books of the law memorized, You don't know. They have every letter of the books of Moses memorized. And he's saying, don't you know God's word? There's a warning in here for us. You can know it and not know the Lord. You can know it and not know the God who wrote it. If your heart isn't soft and open and their hearts are not soft. And so he educates them and he says, Don't you know that God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? I am the God, not I was the God. I am, for he's the God, not of the dead, but of the living. And then, oh, here's the other thing Jesus is doing. The whole Old Testament talks about resurrection. It's all over the place. I just read it in Isaiah 25, 26. There's a couple of references. But Jesus doesn't turn to any of that because he wants to answer them on their grounds. They came to him from Moses. And so he back from Moses he goes, don't you know? See, God, remember Pastor Gina told us last week, God gives him the wisdom for every situation. Okay? So he doesn't just announce to them that resurrection is a coming He gives this beautiful insight into what it's going to be like. And he says, In the age to come, those who are counted worthy of taking part will no longer marry or be given in marriage. For they'll be like the angels. They'll be called children of God for they're children of the resurrection. What? What is going on here that is so beautiful and that speaks to everything that I opened with? This is what's going on. First of all, eternal life doesn't end. And so there's no need to procreate. There will be no more birthing of children. There's no need to procreate in the new creation. And so that intended piece of marriage, of marrying, is no longer necessary. But there's something else that's, um, that's deeper than that. Um, let me just back out for a quick second and then come back to it. When I first started wrestling with this text again this week, I was sad because I have a really great marriage. And I thought to myself, what's this going to be like that Anne's going to be in the new creation and we're not going to be married? And like there's this really special closeness that we have now and what about that? What about that? And here is, here, is what, here is the best of my understanding from looking at the rest of Scripture, thinking about new creation, and from listening to others. I think the specialness and the uniqueness that Ann and I share and that other married couples share is something that we will continue to share, but that it won't be unique to us. So, in his book, The Journey of Desire, John Eldridge talks about his best friend, Brent, and Brent said that he believed that life in the new creation would include multiple intimacy without promiscuity. Multiple intimacy without promiscuity. In other words, Depth of knowing, depth of knowing, we will know people and be known by them because marriage is far more than sex, isn't it? Marriage is at its best in this creation, at its best, marriage is a safe place to be naked and unashamed, and I don't mean that physically to be naked and unashamed, to be who God has made us to be. Because the whole of life on the other side of the Garden of Eden has been clothed, God clothed them with leaves because they were naked and ashamed and that shame isn't merely over realizing that they have body parts. There's a vulnerability that sin causes whereby we don't entrust ourselves to other people and rightly so at times because people hurt us. But can you imagine a new creation in which no relationship is ever tainted by sin? There would not have to be the worry that needs the buffering. There would be the space for relationships in which we all know and are deeply known. In other words, all relationships are safe. The the safety that we experience with God now, that his love creates, is something that will be expanded to all of us. So the best of what you may have experienced or anticipate experiencing in marriage, in this creation can be extrapolated out a hundredfold to every relationship that you have in the new that you and I have in the new creation intimacy all around depth of knowing and being known safety walls down guards down true self shared no shame no worry about being judged beautiful Beautiful. Beautiful. And when you have those kinds of relationships, then I think the disappointment that I was feeling at the onset begins to melt away. Because what I experience in my relationship with Anne is only a foretaste of all that we will experience with each other in the new creation. Paul says, no eye has seen No ear has heard the glory that God has reserved for those who love him. But his spirit has made it known to us. He goes on to say, but but he's made it known to us. Here's where Jesus is beginning to make it known. And so Jesus finishes and Somebody applauds and don't put much stock in that applaud, because it's probably just the Pharisees laughing on the Sadducees. And so Jesus, Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life and has just spoken life to these people, doesn't stop there. I want you to notice the end of the assault against him in terms of accusations and questions, it 's done. But now he's not on the defensive. Now Jesus is on the offensive. Now Jesus carries on and he says, "He says, you tell me something. They've been asking him questions. He says, you tell me. David says, and so why do you call him son of David? When David calls him Lord, what's happening here is this. There were many titles for the Messiah. Many titles. Uh, expectations for who he would be. And son of David was one of the most oft used terms. And all Jesus is doing is not saying you shouldn't call him son of David. He's just saying you've got the wrong term in the highest place. You ought to switch him out. His term, his name is Lord. And he's just exemplified that lordship again. And again, he's inviting them to respond to his lordship. He's giving yet another chance. He is saying, the Lord is present in your midst. I want to I conclude with um, what I think are three f- profound implications. The first is this. He uses the words, whoever is counted worthy of participating in the age to come. And those words can flag up worry in us because anybody who's got a shred of honesty knows that I'm not worried, I'm not worthy. I cannot stand before the creator of the heavens and earth and declare that I have anything in myself that I have done to earn a place in this Age to come. And so maybe worry gets flagged up a little bit. But worth doesn't come through what we bring, but rather through who Jesus is and how we receive him. I said earlier that if there's no resurrection, there's no justice. The one who will judge and the one who brings justice effected that justice right here. This is the place where the justice of God and the mercy of God meet together. And the one who brings justice and mercy said, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people unto myself. Paul says about him, God wants none to perish, but all to come to a knowledge of salvation. And so he's constantly drawing constantly inviting and anyone who comes to the one who brings justice and mercy at the cross is received because God longs to make him worthy. So worthiness is found in Jesus and we belong through faith to Jesus. So we get the question again this morning, do I belong to Jesus? If I don't, I ought to have legitimate fear of judgment And of God's justice, not because God desires to punish. But because I have not yet accepted the one who longs to impart his worth and his love to me. But if we belong to Jesus, there is no fear in love because perfect love drives out fear. And it replaces fear with faith faith that looks at this. Popcorn popping. Okay, that's my reminder to tell you this little story. This is the image that I had coming to my mind. As, we, as we've been, as we've been um, making our way through this last week of Jesus' life, what, the, what it's felt like with these repeated challenges, you know when you put popcorn in the microwave and the heat starts and you hear pop, 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 and then it gets more and more intense and it's Pop 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 and it builds and it builds and it builds until it all blows, right? You know what I'm talking about. Okay. So then you open the door and there's the popcorn. All nicely done. Well, that's what it's felt like in terms of the resistance against Jesus. Pop, 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 pop. And here we go. We open the door after the last resistance, the last accusation, and what's there? The Lord, the resurrection and life standing strong, not weak, but strong, not battered, strong. He is the Lord and he will get bruised and battered voluntarily so. But nothing, not the worst of what the world or what Satan can throw at him is something that knocks him down. He stands in the wisdom of God in the grace and the care of God, and He stands strong. And that has profound implication for you and I because greater is He that's in us, and you've got to know it isn't your strength because the world and the devil will continue to pour on Christians all the wrath of Satan. And we do not move. We stand strong in Him. It's like the waves of water just wash over Him and... He stands without being buffeted by the wind and the waves. And we stand. And so this is why Paul says to the Ephesians when he writes to them on the day of evil. In other words, when something evil is happening, like it's happening a lot these days, stand. We stand. When evil things happen to us. We stand not because we're strong, but because we're in the one who is the resurrection and the life. We belong to him, to the one who's gone through the grave, who's risen and lives forevermore, and who's coming again. Amen. 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 He's coming again. And I just pray that that is more real to us than anything in this world. Because you know what? It is. Put a hand up if you're over 60. Oh, uh, maybe I shouldn't pick a... All right. Just, just keep your hands up for a second. Everybody who's over 60, these folks are going to be standing before God in the, in the next 20 years. They're going to be standing right in front of them. Lord, if the law of averages holds, 81 for women, 76 for men in the United States. Okay? They're in the last quarter of their life. Quite possibly. But they're not. They're not. They're going to rise. And so let's stand and let's rise and let's celebrate with them and with us the hope that we have in Jesus. Let's sing the song. What's it called, Lindsay? I will rise. I will rise. Let's stand and rise. Let's celebrate joyfully the hope of resurrection.